Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 171, The Eastern Frontier. Last time we were in Armenia talking about Basil II's acquisitions and the true nature of the Roman presence there. Though Byzantine troops garrisoned key forts and passes, daily life continued much as it had before. Let's just roll straight on to the rest of the Eastern Front, as several of the issues we touched on in the mountains are relevant there too. Some listeners have been surprised by the nature of the Roman conquests, specifically the absence of attempts to instill Romanness in the newly acquired territory. And I think there are some misconceptions floating about. Remember that they're just weren't enough Romans around to make that kind of impact on a new territory. In both East and West, lots of land had been abandoned during centuries of raiding. And now that peace had come, new Roman families could cultivate local land. They didn't need to migrate to find space. Up in Armenia... Well, the place was full of Armenians. It would have been madness for the Byzantines to walk in and start making demands for cultural or significant political change. And there's an implication in listeners' comments that the Romans of old would have conquered in a different way, that they would have insisted on spreading Romanness to foreign lands. But I don't think that was the case at all. The genius of Roman rule was to allow incorporated peoples to maintain their local customs, so long as they paid taxes and acknowledged the authority of the emperors. It was only over time that local elites realized the benefits of demonstrating their Romanness in order to gain promotion. The Byzantines were simply continuing in that tradition. When they captured new territory, they asked the locals to run it for them. They would send a military governor to oversee things, but the day-to-day -day operations were in the hands of local, non-Roman people. We talked last time about the large Armenian populations that dominated the eastern borderlands. 
Cities like Theodosiopolis and Melitene were, after all, in the Armenian mountains. It was no surprise that the majority of new colonists were Armenians. Constantinople therefore governed these cities through existing practices. Rather than attempt to impose land registries and thematic obligations, they simply enforced the norms of local society. As with the rest of Armenia, they expected to receive a certain amount of tax from local trade and farming, and the governor could step in to arbitrate complex legal matters. But any issues below that level were left to citizens to organize for themselves. I mentioned in a previous episode that after capturing them, the Byzantines did not repair the walls of Theodosiopolis and Melitene. Initially, one could argue that this was precautionary. With Seyfadola still on the rampage, it might have been wise to prevent him from reoccupying those sites. But even after his demise, Melitene was left without full circuit walls. Almost as if it wasn't seen as a piece of Roman territory that might need to be defended, and more like a large trading and administrative post that should pay tribute to the Byzantine government in exchange for its protection. After all, there's nothing to stop us from marching in to deal with you if you don't keep the tax flowing. This type of policy probably extended to other border towns throughout the mountains and Cilicia, all peopled by majority non-Roman populations. And this attitude should be familiar to us from our time looking at the administration of conquered Bulgaria. You'll recall that there, Basil left locals in charge of administration and maintained the existing tax arrangements. Over time, Constantinople would try to bring a little more uniformity to the administration of these regions, but only gradually. Several listeners asked about the demographic makeup of the frontier, so here's what we know. In Antioch and the surrounding countryside, you had a mixed population of Arabic-speaking Christians and Muslims. Amongst the Christians, there was a mix of Orthodox or Chalcedonians and Monophysites. Rather like in Armenia, the Chalcedonian Christians tended to be favoured by the authorities. The local Muslim population was significant and was not put under any pressure to leave since they were such a crucial part of the economy. In a seemingly tit-for-tat policy, Constantinople asked the Muslims to pay a head tax for the right to live in the Christian Empire. It was hard to argue that this was an unfair imposition, given it was by now a centuries-old obligation for Jews and Christians within the Caliphate. One listener asked for details about how the Byzantines approached the governance of a Muslim population. We don't know a huge amount, but can assume that they treated them much like other minorities under their rule. Disputes between two Muslims would have been dealt with under their own law by their own judges. As long as they paid their taxes, their faith was tolerated. Obviously, public space would now be overtly Christian, and Muslim worship would need to be restricted to the mosques. 
a Christian Arab from Baghdad traveled through this area in the 1050s and described villages with Christians and Muslims living alongside one another peacefully. At the port city of Laodicea, or Laodicea, as it may be better pronounced, he said that the city's main mosque had been converted into a church, but that the smaller mosques remained in Muslim hands. This suggests that Byzantine policy towards Muslims was very similar to that of the caliphate towards Christians. Listener MB asked whether the return of Roman rule to northern Syria would be seen as a liberation by local Christians, or whether after so much time the Byzantines would be seen as more foreign than the Arabs. It's a great question, and I suspect the truth was closer to the latter, with some variation depending on your perspective. I think the Romans would have seemed quite foreign to many. Arabic had long become the language of everyday life, including Christian theological discussion, and with it would have come cultural norms from the caliphate. 400 years later, I think it's safe to say that local people would have felt culturally much closer to their Muslim neighbours than the Greek speakers from the West. Politically, too, plenty of Christians would have been anxious about the return of Roman rule. The Monophysites were wary of the return of orthodox authorities, and even someone like the Patriarch of Antioch would have lost much of his independence as his church was reabsorbed. However, many saw plenty of benefits in the return of Christian rule. The chance to overturn restrictions on behaviour, dress, and political advancement were, I'm sure, welcome. And as we just mentioned, the chance to turn public spaces into venues for Christian processions would have been quite an emotional moment. But it's difficult to know how restricted Antioch's large Christian population had been before the Byzantines arrived. Uh, That change might have appeared more dramatic to those who migrated from other parts of the caliphate in order to live under the Christian empire, although not all of those moved out of choice. Some were fleeing persecution. More on that later. So uh, a mixed reaction is the best answer I can give, and this is why wise Roman governors aimed to operate at a distance, allowing local communities to run their own affairs in order to keep disruption to a minimum. As you may recall, it was Nicephorus Phocas who encouraged the Syrian Monophysite Patriarch to migrate to Melitene to help repopulate the city. The migration of non-Orthodox Syrian Christians therefore headed in that direction. One scholar estimates that 56 Syrian churches were founded in and around Melitene during this period, fueled in part by the dominance of the trade routes by Christian Arab families. The wealthiest we know of were the Banu Abu Imran family. They were heavily involved in the trade between Mosul and Tikrit, bringing wares from Baghdad up the river to the mountains and cities like Melitene. 
Uh, They therefore sponsored churches and monasteries along this route, encouraging their brethren to invest in the new Roman outposts. It's a big generalization, but one could say that in Syria, Monophysites tended to live in the countryside and the Chalcedonians in the cities. Hence why the latter still dominated affairs at Antioch, and the former could consider moving north towards Melite. As I mentioned last week, Cilicia was dominated by Armenian immigrants. There was still a large population of Muslims, or former Muslims, but the Armenians enjoyed greater political organisation, judging by the emergence of an Armenian kingdom there in the post-Manzikert world. It's hard for us to know the extent of Roman migration into the new territories. Certainly there was some, but not enough to become a majority anywhere significant. One of the few we know about was a magnate called Ephstathios Boilas. He died on his estate in Tau in the 1050s, and in his will he comments that none of his new neighbours were Roman or Orthodox. Hopefully this roundup is giving you a better picture of Byzantium's new territories. As Antony Caldellis points out, for the first time since Heraclius's day, the Byzantines were actually ruling over lots of non-Roman people again. The empire was more of an empire in a traditional sense, rather than the Greek-speaking Orthodox nation-state that Professor Caldellis argues for in the Byzantine Republic. Not only Armenians and Arabs, but Bulgarians and Lombards in large numbers were brought under the Roman yoke by Basil II and his predecessors. Hence why Roman rule was so light and little attempt was made to force these populations to behave like their counterparts in Greece and Anatolia. The Romans had enough trouble fighting on one front, they couldn't afford to provoke multiple rebellions. Naturally, this did cause some tension back home. Orthodoxy had been forged in the fires of suffering. Centuries of being beaten down by the Arabs had convinced the Romans that ridding their state of non-conformists was key to keeping God happy. To suddenly allow all these unorthodox Christians back into the fold was a potential contamination. And this will be one of the challenges facing the emperors who follow in Basil's footsteps. An expanded empire was not necessarily a stronger or more united one. The expanded borders of the empire naturally required an increase in the number of troops on active duty, and in our next episode we'll talk more about the nature of the Roman army in 1025. But in keeping with the light touch of administration, the Romans did not send thousands of soldiers into every new province. Instead, as we saw in Bulgaria and Armenia, major garrisons maintained the key points and smaller ones were spread out across the countryside. Only Antioch maintained a large force of 4,000 men. It's hard to tell exactly, but it seems likely that no other city had more than 2,000 troops at any one time. 
Why was this? Well, the reason Antioch needed so many was because it was the likely target of Fatimid aggression. The Fatimid Caliphate, based in Egypt, was the only real superpower, or medium power anyway, on the Roman borders. Uh, They were the only state capable of maintaining a war effort that could seriously damage the empire. The rulers in Iran and Iraq were too distant. Antioch was also a large city that could feed 4,000 men who were not involved in the production of food. Other cities would have struggled with such a burden. Also, Roman emperors had long ceased to trust their generals with forces of that size. Basil II had, of course, been burnt by both Bardas Focus and Scleros, and you may remember that he was extremely watchful over other men he appointed to command in the east. If they disobeyed his instructions while in command of the Antioch garrison, then he dismissed them instantly. As far as we know, there were significant garrisons at various points, uh, Theodosiopolis, Caesarea, and in uh, strongholds in Tau, Tehran, and Vaspurakan. But it's possible that there were only a few hundred men each, or a thousand or two thousand at the absolute most. As we'll discuss next week, when the emperor went on campaign, he collected his field army as he went. If he left it mustered in one place in the hands of a subordinate, he would be inviting rebellion. Finally, troops cost a lot of money. To keep men permanently stationed anywhere meant they had to be paid year-round, and this was seen as a needless drain on the treasury if no fighting was actually going on. All of this means that keeping the peace in the borderlands involved a lot of local coordination. Rather than relying on the army to march around and do everything themselves, it was cheaper and more efficient to encourage local Armenians to protect their own backyard, as they had always done, or to maintain good relations with neighbouring rulers, uh, as in Aleppo, Mosul, and the Arab Emirates around Lake Van. Uh, Or indeed to get cities like Melitene to pay for their own militia to sort out policing issues. As historian Catherine Holmes puts it, the frontier in the east resembles a zone where the imposition of Byzantine military authority was inconsistent and intermittent, and where diplomatic relationships were of greater importance. I've left a couple of last week's maps up if you want to view the borderlands for yourself and contemplate some of these issues. I'll conclude this section by reiterating what I said when we toured the Balkans. I feel that many casual history fans believe that Basil II conquered huge swathes of new territory, and within 50 years all those gains were squandered and the empire was lost. But that isn't an accurate picture. What the Romans did was to remove Arab control of the borderlands and impose their own. But the people there were not Roman, nor were they especially rich. They might one day become both, but in the century or less that Byzantium was in charge of them, they remained a complex polyglot of peoples who needed careful management and cajoling in order to supply the Romans with the recruits and revenues that they were after. They were not a burden on the empire, 
Romania was stronger for having absorbed the sore spots on its eastern and western borders, but it stretched the capabilities of Constantinople to manage and maintain them. Now, hopefully most of you are nodding along sagely, having lived through this before. We saw Justinian's expansion have decidedly mixed results back in the 6th century. Then, I argued that the expansion itself did not lead to ruin, but it made life more complicated for Justinian's successors. And I think we should view the frontiers in 1025 in a similar light. What Basil II left his successors was a wealthy and powerful state, but one which required a hugely dominant and stable emperor to look after it. If ignored or mistreated, the new conquests could cause plenty of trouble for Constantinople. I won't be taking you around the lands of the Caliphate on this tour. The Arabs will no longer be the major threat to Byzantium, and so we can leave their internal politics to those who want to focus on their story. However, while we're here, I will attempt to answer a couple of listener questions relating to them. Listener E asks what the proportion of Christians were amongst the populations of the former Byzantine provinces, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. An Islamic scholar would, of course, give a better answer than I can, but broadly speaking, the Copts of Egypt remained a large Christian community for much longer than those elsewhere, mainly because of the geography of Egypt, where communities could live down south along the Nile, relatively undisturbed from the currents of culture going on in the cities closer to the Mediterranean. I've seen guesstimates of 40% of the population still being Christian. The Copts seem to have done well under Fatimid rule. The Fatimids were a Shia sect ruling over a Sunni population, so it suited them to employ Jews and Christians to fill a lot of administrative posts. Several Copts served as viziers, and Christians seem to have been heavily employed as tax collectors, presumably because they knew conditions best along the banks of the Nile. In Syria and Palestine, with more fractured geography, the proportion of Christians left in 1025 was smaller. Listener E asks how many of them were Monophysite and how many Chalcedonians. Again, I can't put a number on it, but we know that Jerusalem and the Holy Land generally was a stronghold for Chalcedonians, both in the cities and the monasteries of the countryside, some of which still function today. Elsewhere, the Chalcedonians seem to have been found mostly in the cities, acting as a central organisation for Christians who were working within the caliphate's bureaucracy. So early on, the community in Tyre and Damascus was quite prominent, but when the caliphs moved to Baghdad, those churches declined and new ones sprung up on the Tigris. Whereas the Monophysites tended to centre their worship on rural monasteries. 
So as in Egypt, Christianity survived among farming communities who were less disturbed by the major urban changes in the caliphate's development. And as we saw earlier, some Arab tribes maintained their monophysite faith across the centuries, their pastoral lifestyle protecting them from being swept along into the Muslim mainstream. And that is generally what we perceive to have happened to many Christians who were professionally successful. We know that Christian administrators and doctors, to name two professions, were prominent in the caliphate. And several high-profile men left behind accounts of their conversion to Islam. These were public recantations of their Christianity, and while some of them may have been genuine spiritual transformations, it's likely that they were also motivated by career advancement. The authorities doubtless put pressure on talented Christians to convert. This demonstrated their loyalty to the regime and smoothed their path into higher administrative positions. The same thing happened in Byzantium, where Arab prisoners of war might convert and start serving in the palace or the provinces. Conversion was necessary to make these appointments palatable to local feeling. Though dozens of Muslim writers mention Christian communities in passing during this period, none seem to discuss them as an important matter of state. This suggests that cities like Antioch, Edessa, and Jerusalem, with large Christian populations, were a rarity. In general, the cities of the caliphate were dominated by Islam, and no Christian group was large enough to warrant discussion in the political literature of the day. That brings us to listener AK's question which was whether much writing survives showing the reaction of Muslims to the return of Byzantine rule in the East. The answer is that little seems to have survived, though obviously more would have come had the Romans remained in the area longer. There is one reference I found that I thought you'd enjoy. It comes from the Casida Sassania, a poem which describes the many different types of beggar one found in the lands of the caliphate. Two in particular draw our attention. One is a man who has learned how to swallow his tongue. He turns up in a village explaining that the Romans cut out his tongue and that he's raising money to fight the infidels. Another also goes for pity, saying that his family has been captured by the Romans and he needs money to ransom them. Both are lying, but their stories draw attention and sympathy from Muslim populations. The reaction within the lands of the Caliphate to Byzantine success is something we haven't really talked about. Generally, scholars find little evidence of persecution of Christians on the part of the authorities, during the centuries of caliphal rule. Islam was clearly triumphant. The peoples of the book were therefore unworthy targets for harangues. As long as they accepted their second-class status and paid their taxes, they were left alone. However, the string of Byzantine victories during the 10th and 11th centuries prompted periodic outbursts of hatred towards local Christians. 
923, churches were destroyed at Ramla, Ascalon, and Caesarea in Palestine. The bishop of Ascalon traveled to Baghdad to complain, but got no help, and retired rather than return. In 940, the great church at Ascalon was destroyed for good. In 966, the governor of Jerusalem began to persecute the local Christians. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre was set on fire and the Patriarch killed. In 1002, rioters in Baghdad attacked the local Christians and set a church on fire. And finally, in 1009, Al-Hakim, the Mad Caliph, started a general persecution in Palestine and demolished the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, that last one was unusual. Caliphs have a good record for leaving the Church in peace, but it's a, a pattern uh, that makes for interesting reading because you can sort of see the stages of the Byzantine advance. Theodosiopolis in the 920s, Melitene around 940, Cilicia in the 960s. As news trickled along the roads that the Romans had won a major victory and as refugees began arriving with tales of woe, anger grew and these exploded in brief anti-Christian attacks. Next time, we take a look at the Roman army of 1025 and see how it's changed across the past century, as well as answering some more listener questions. As most of you know, I announced the first ever History of Byzantium tour last week and then added a second one, and both have now sold out. Uh, so thank you so much to all of you who responded, and if all goes well, I should be able to offer uh, several more dates in 2020, and that will uh, give you lots of time to prepare. I know that's a long way off, but I am happy to look for dates that are convenient for you. So have a think about it, and uh, when, whenever the time is right, drop me an email, and we can work towards it. <laughs>